The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. So turn, if you haven't already, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, we will enter in now uh, at verse 5 in just a moment but we need to sort of understand where things are coming from and what's happening here first. Um, Paul, the apostle, who was the founder of the Corinthian church, who taught there for 18 months and discipled these people and loved these people along with Timothy and Titus and others that came along, uh, he has been unfairly criticized by one particular man in the Corinthian church who has successfully led many in the church into wrong doctrine and wrong thinking about Paul and the Christian life. But because of Paul's first letter that we already studied, the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, the people there have done church discipline, and they expelled this man from the church. Now, he repented, it seems, but they didn't want anything to do with him. And this really upset Paul. And so he wrote 2 Corinthians, among other reasons, to correct their unloving response toward this man. Now look at verse 5. Paul writes, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me, Paul says, as he has grieved all of you to some extent not to put it too severely. In other words, I'm not exaggerating. You'll understand it even a little more with the New Living Translation. It's written, I am not overstating it, Paul says, when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt your entire church more than he hurt me. Now, this one verse is a picture of Paul's theology of the church. We are a family the body of Christ. That's what the the biblical name for the church is. Each local expression of the universal church is where we find our family members to one another. Oh, I talk about it all the time. I know we must one another, one another. And we can't one another if we don't know another. And so we have to come to know each other to one another. (laughs) Do you get it? I hope so. Now, we don't have a formal membership here, but when you decide this is your church home, you're a member. This is where you exercise your spiritual gifts and disciple others as you're being discipled. Uh, When there are problems in the family, uh, we are all to be involved in dealing with them. Paul is saying that the particular person who had turned against him and caused others to turn against him, did far more damage to the church family than he did to Paul. Actually, there's one verse 
that underlines what Paul really sees, how Paul sees the church that we've already studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. You might remember it. And Paul says, if one member of the church, of our family here, suffers, all suffer together. If one member <clears throat> is honored, all rejoice together. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that you can't suffer with those who suffer or rejoice with those who are honored if you don't know who is suffering and who is being honored. And therefore, uh, since you're part of the family at Calvary Chapel of Sarasota, if that's the church you have chosen to stay at, uh, then you must work hard at finding out what's happening, get on the prayer wall and be able to see all that's going on in the church, and then that way we can truly be one another Christians. Now, from Genesis to the Revelation, the whole Bible, God's people are pictured as a family that cannot get along without each other. We are not a club, but an eternal community with relationships that last for forever. Church participation is not an option. Church attendance is not a concert or a place to measure the impact of a sermon or a show to watch on the internet. Church is a place to worship God and obey the teaching from God's Word along with serving and being served by one another as we develop our prayer life and grow spiritually. If you can live satisfactorily without the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you're living an inadequate and weak Christian life. Now, look at verse 6. <clears throat> Paul goes back to this man that they've kicked out of the church, and, and he deserved it. <clears throat> Paul says, the punishment inflicted on him of discipline by the majority is sufficient. You know, he's really saying enough already. Verse 7, now, instead... You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In other words, be totally depressed and led astray eventually. And then he says, I urge you, therefore, I urge you. You remember I've used that phrase over and over again. Paul uses it all the time. He's an apostle. The way the church was set up, if he wanted to, he could have sort of insisted on things. But he says, I urge you. Therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So, I mean, it seems obvious that he had repented and he wanted to return to fellowship. And Paul was insisting that even those in the church who were hurt by him must forgive and comfort him. After all, he wants to come back. He wants to be part of the church. He realizes he did wrong. Now, forgiveness means we choose to forget the past and move forward in relationship with the repentant sinner. This is really important. It's, it's sort of the key to all the Christianity is about. It's all about sinners. That's all of us who have repented of our sins and been forgiven by God, even though none of us deserved it. Now, I know that when someone sins against you, it's impossible to actually forget what happened. I know that. But love we learned, keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, when we forgive someone, we choose to not bring the issue up again. 
And Paul was using this as a test for those he so loved in the Corinthian church. We are all forgiven because we're sinners and God sent a son to forgive us. He never brings up our previous sins again. Never again. And I've used the illustration often in first, is it first, one nine. First Corinthians one nine? What is it? I'm not hearing it clear enough. I mean, I know the verse, but I know it's in John, 1 John, 1 John 1, 9. But anyhow, it says that if we, when we sin, and we're talking to Christians, uh, that if we repent of that sin, that God will forgive that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the, the point I like to make, and I do like to make it, is that if we could in just a split second come back to God and say, oh, you remember that sin you just forgiven? Uh, theologically speaking, God would say, no, I forgot it. My purpose is I'll never bring it up again. That's the way we're to deal with one another. Now, Paul was testing them. Look at verse 9. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. You can't use, put it this way. Obedience to God's word demands doing the hard work of church discipline, and that is hard work, and then the hard work of forgiving. And Paul goes on to say in verse 10, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Notice Paul. Paul always cared more about others than himself. He was saying this and, and doing this because he wanted the church to be unified. And, but there was more to it than that because uh, we have an enemy called Satan. He says, I've forgiven you in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan, our enemy, the devil, might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, we already learned in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus uh, that we're in a spiritual battle with Satan and his fallen angels who are called demons. We've already learned that. And many of you have, uh, have uh, memorized Ephesians chapter 6, but just a couple of the verses here. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10, 11, and 12, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's a picture of being filled with the Spirit. Put on the full armor of God because the picture of the devil coming after us is he, Paul uses a Roman soldier. And so to be strong in the Lord means that we fully understand what that means. So the helmet that the soldier wears is the helmet of salvation. The breastplate is called the breastplate of righteousness. We're saved. We're now made righteous. The belt is the belt of truth. And then the, you pick up the, uh, the, the faith shield with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then you grab the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then you pray. And so he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God, realize who you are in Christ so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, I would put in here, and Paul already covers it in the first part of Ephesians, uh, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood only. Some of our struggle is against ourselves, <laughs> 
But our struggle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, this man has done wrong. But Paul did not want to see him taken over by Satan's schemes. He was now very vulnerable, and Paul cared about him, regardless of what he had said about Paul, which is what love looks like. I mean, he'd said that Paul was fickle. He said that Paul didn't know what he was talking about. He said you couldn't trust Paul. You didn't know if his yes was yes or his no was no. Uh, he, he just put him down every place, and he had other, Paul calls them super apostles later, he call, had others sort of join with him, and then he was leading those in the Corinthian church in the wrong direction. But now he's repented, and Paul wants to treat him like he's repented. Now, we do know one particular scheme of the devil. It's in 1 Peter 5.8. And this, the apostle Peter wrote this. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So this side of eternity, we're always going to have a problem with the devil. Paul did not want his former enemy to be devoured by the devil. Paul truly cared about the unity of the church, and he really cared about the man who caused disunity. Paul was not one who would say that he forgave someone but no longer wanted to have anything to do with him. He would never say that. Paul did not take personally what the man had said about him. God's forgiveness is complete and reconciling. That's why I've called the sermon Forgiven and Accepted. Our forgiveness must be complete and reconciling as much as it's up to us. Now, every time, every time I talk on forgiveness, I always use one verse, and sometimes even most of the time I start a sermon on forgiveness, and this whole, we're going to go to other things here, but uh, with this verse, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 32. And then I always say, if you've mastered this verse, you don't need any more information about forgiveness. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind, that's the fruit of the Spirit, and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, now here's the real key, just as in Christ, that's the Messiah, that's the cross, that's Jesus dying for our sin and rising from the dead, God forgave you. If we fully understand that verse, then we could never not forgive someone who repents of their sin. Now, Paul wrote the same thing in Colossians with more words. Uh, let me just read it. Uh, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, he's talking about the church, all of us together, you must clothe yourselves, that's like being filled with the Spirit, with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Patience. May, in the King James Version of the Bible, the word patience is always long-suffering, and it's always about people long-suffering with people. So if you're going to be part of the family of God, you're going to have to learn to suffer long because of certain people. 
<laughs> and that's the way we're supposed to be. And he says, make allowance for each other's faults. Make allowance for each other's faults. None of us are perfect. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Wow. I mean, that turns the whole world upside down. Or at least right side up, I guess is the better way to say it. So now we move on to a great picture of Paul's ministry. He writes in a way that should cause the Corinthian church to be far more discerning and no longer fall for any false teaching. But before we get to that, we see Paul at his lowest. Verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, every place Paul went, God opened doors for him. People were coming to the Lord. So that should make him pretty happy. But he says, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, he expected Titus. He had sent Titus to the Corinthian church to see how, what they were doing. Uh, they had worked it all out. They, know, knew, they, they all knew how long it took to go from one place to another. There's all kinds of things could have happened. But he gets there, and Titus isn't there, and he's so concerned about the church. You'll see why I emphasize that in a minute. He's so concerned about the church that when Titus isn't there, even though he's having success in ministry, he's really down. He's really struggling. It would be correct to say that Paul was even depressed at this point. He had sent Titus to Corinth to see how things worked out and expected to meet Titus and Troas, but he's not there. And Paul was so discouraged that he couldn't even minister, though many were interested in the gospel. So he decided to move on and hope Titus might be in Macedonia because that would be on the way to Troas uh, to meet Paul. So he says, same verse still, I said goodbye to them, and I went on to Macedonia. Now, we actually know what happened. We'll study it in detail later, but uh, I'll read it from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what happened. In chapter 7, verse 5, it starts there. It says, it's on the screen, for when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Now, that was normal for Paul. Every place he went, there were all kinds of problems when he brought the gospel. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast... Now, stop there because we spent a lot of time on this word comfort uh, when we started the study in 2 Corinthians. And the idea behind it is that word comfort is the same word for Holy Spirit. And the word comfort was that God comforts those who are in trouble, who are, who, who are in need, with more comfort than they even need so that that comfort overflows from them to others. So comfort between people is an overflowing comfort where we want another one another. And we can comfort one another. So we see it in action here uh, where he says... But God, who comforts the downcast, he could be just saying he comforts me, <laughs> comfort us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you have given him. So when Titus went to Corinth, the church 
embraced him and comforted him, and that overflowing comfort came in Paul on the, and the others. And not only that, he, he was able to say, it was part of the comfort, he was able to say uh, that he told us about your longing for me. Paul was, he must have been enormously relieved. Your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. He was pulled right out of his downcast, his depression, because of the comfort of the church. Now, this is important. Uh, We're going to spend some time later, a lot of time in chapter 11 of the uh, book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, chapter 11 is a terrible chapter. Paul uh, pictures all the things that have happened to him and how difficult his life was because he was a Christian and because he was bringing the gospel to all these places. Let me just read a little bit of it, not all of it. He says, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift in the sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas, and I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then it seems, if you're in the context, and we'll see it better when we get to chapter 11, but in the context, it's almost like Paul took a breath here. And it's almost like he's saying, he didn't say this, but he sort of does. Now, all of that is nothing compared to chapter Second Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Put it up on the screen. Here it is. Besides everything else, that's what comes after what I read. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul cared about the church. He cared about the church bodies, uh, the ones that he founded, the ones that he visited, the church overall. He cared more about the church than he cared about himself. And Paul's priority was first pastoral. His concern for the Corinthian church and its unity was greater than even his concern for evangelism. A church that doesn't have unity cannot be effective in evangelism. There's nothing worse than bringing a new Christian into a group of believers who are in rebellion or who are full of gossip and display unforgiveness toward one another. When I was putting this together, I seldom struggled as much as I have trying to put this particular message together. But I always ask the same question, and I mentioned this before in your hearing. What's the main point of this passage? I sat last night really late saying, what is the point? What am I trying to say? Or what is Paul trying to say in this passage? So I think this is it. Paul has been falsely accused of many things by his detractors, So Paul wants to clearly outline what the Christian life truly consists of and at the same time prove his ministry is in fact the ministry God prepared for him. 
Integrity is one of the best words to describe how Paul did ministry. He never tried to manipulate anyone and truly loved those who had become believers under his teaching. His detractors claimed that they had a more successful ministry than Paul, that they had more outward things happening than ever happened in Paul's ministry. After all, Paul had raised the dead. He had healed the sick. They had more pizzazz and emotion. The Corinthian church was a very emotional church, as we have seen from 1 Corinthians, but they were weak in doctrine, so it was easy to be led astray. And these, as Paul calls them later, super apostles, were saying that they were much more effective than Paul and that they even had letters from others, letters of recommendation from others, outlining all the manifestations of their ministries. Today, these type of ministries are ubiquitous, especially on the YouTube channel. Uh, Beware of it. Now, wait, listen. When I go home this afternoon, I'll be sitting down in front of the TV. I'll turn on YouTube and watch what Chuck Swindoll preached on this morning in Texas to great, great benefit. Before I came here this morning, uh, I turned on YouTube channel, and I went to David Jeremiah and heard this incredible message on prayer that I really needed to hear. And, And I could go on and on with the good parts of it, but there's a lot of bad parts. So if you go on to YouTube, make sure you're listening. You know the best people to listen to? Dead pastors. Who have, who have never had any shame in their long lives. And present pastors, there's lots of them on there, uh, from one I consider young, Hibbs, he's pretty young. I think he's only 60. But uh, other than that, uh, so, some of these pastors like David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, and I could, I could just go on and on, who have a proven track record of integrity and truth and are teaching what the Bible has to say. But in among all that, there are these traps that try to pull us in. Years ago, many years ago, there was an evangelist in this area, up in the, just in the Tampa area, who was making great claims of both prophetic and healing ministries. And everybody and lots of people that were going to church here started going to hear him. He had radio ads, and on the radio ads, he claimed he, that the deaf were hearing and the blind were being made to see. So I decided, well, I better go and see. So I went to some of his meetings, and I started keeping track of his prophecies, many with specific dates attached to them. I tried to find a person uh, who had been blind but could now see. I went and visited him, and... Uh, Uh, I mean, at one of his meetings, he said that in his meeting, public meeting, he said that 10 people that year have been totally blind and they now could see. So when I met with him, I asked him and he couldn't give me the name of even one person. And I thought that if 10 blind people in Tampa had received sight, if we had one blind person in this church receiving sight, you'd all already have heard the testimony and seen whoever that was, but he couldn't remember the name of one of those people. It would be big news if that was true. So I challenged him about the prophecies, but he changed the subject and told me not to judge him. Don't judge God's elect. I was able to document over 10 date-specific prophecies that began with the words, thus saith the Lord, but did not become 
truth. And the sad part was, if that's not sad enough, I knew several people who were attending his meetings regularly, but they were not growing in knowledge biblically. Some, including a close friend, stopped attending church regularly and became extreme in his beliefs. The fruit of, the, uh, of his life was not matching any longer to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this seems to be the case with those who had come to the church and were trying to assert Paul's ministry. These so-called super apostles were bragging about outward results. Paul was able to point to inward growth. But now that Titus had come with the news that the Corinthian church was doing good, Paul was encouraged, and I think he shouted these words. Verse 14, look in your Bibles, verse 14. I think he shouted them. But thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, that doesn't really impact us to start with unless you studied the Bible and you know what he's talking about. But when he shouted that out, everybody around him knew exactly what he was talking about. A triumphal procession was like a ticker tape parade or even a Santa Claus parade. Valerie and I tripped over a Santa Claus parade recently. We were over at the mall uh, to just try to exchange something, and we got trapped. <laughs> and, uh, you know, wire walkers, or a wire walker, and, uh, and, you know, Santa Claus, the real Santa Claus was there. Uh, we've got a fake one here someplace. <laughs> and... Uh, and, I mean, their crowds were everywhere, and it was, for little kids especially, they were so excited. I mean, it was just amazing. So I, didn't, I don't have to describe a Santa Claus parade to you. You know what that is. But these triumphal processions were way bigger than anything like that. And uh, a general had gone out, and he had killed many of an enemy in a place nearby that was going to put his country, Rome, in this case, in danger, and he would have killed thousands of the enemy had been in the midst of the battle and all the soldiers, and they had won this great thing and got, lot, got lots of stuff that they're bringing back from that place too to bring back to Rome, and they'd have this big procession. Everybody, I mean, there was nobody didn't turn out for these things. The crowds were on the side of the street. The, uh, the cheering was very, very uh, loud. The, the, uh, the Roman uh, soldier... Uh, or the, the, main, uh, the main Roman general uh, would uh, be being pulled along with four uh, white horses, in some cases even elephants, <laughs> uh, would pull him uh, along in his chariot. And, uh, and then behind him would be the soldiers that were victorious, holding their heads high, and they were so proud. And behind them uh, were many prisoners who were on the way, in most cases, to their death. But around all of that, there was a worship of gods. And uh, they would have these things that they swung uh, that had incense in them, and the smell of this incense was everywhere. When the soldiers who won smelled the incense, it made them feel great, a smell of victory. When the prisoners smelled the incense, it wasn't so good because it meant their deaths. That's the, what Paul is talking about. But thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us 
we Christians, to spread the aroma of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ of him everywhere. And then look at verse 15. Here's how he applies it. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. It's the same smell as it was in the parade. And then he says, to the one, we're an aroma that brings death. That's the one that doesn't want anything to do with the gospel. They don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. They don't believe anything uh, that he died in the cross and rose from the dead and all that. So to the one, we're an aroma that brings death. To the other, those who have received Christ, an aroma that brings life. And then he just says it sort of, and who is equal to such a task? I mean, Paul was always amazed that God used him the way he did. Now, I have watched, (laughs) I already talked about it a little bit, several preachers on YouTube that make the Christian life sound more like a trip to Disney than the adventure and even danger that we experience while telling others what the only hope is for the world today. Uh, Late last night, I read a sermon. I actually didn't read it. I listened to it uh, by Ray Stedman. He's one of those dead preachers that's worth listening to. And he's one of the best ones of all. And uh, he was talking about the victorious Christian life. That was sort of his theme. He wrote a book about the victorious Christian life. And so I copied down these words that he said. The victorious Christian life is not one of continual victory in the sense of overcoming all obstacles and feeling triumphant as you go. No, no. It's one of anguish of heart at times, of deep inner doubts, of fighting with frustrations without, I'll read it better, of fighting with frustrations without and fears within. It is one of being Opposed oftentimes, yet confident that the God who is within you is able to work his work and do his will, that out of the fear, the frustration, and the failure is coming triumph and victory and the fragrance of Jesus Christ. And then he asks, have you come to that? That is what is going to turn and change this world around us. That was... That's part of a sermon of many decades ago. Many decades ago. Now look at verse 17. So Paul says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. I really like the New Living Translation here. You see, we're not like those hucksters, and there are many of them who preach just to make money. We preach God's message with sincerity and with Christ's authority. And we know that the God who sent us is watching us. In other words, we're responsible to God. You know, we have an audience of one. Now, the last three verses that I'll do, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? 
Now, the, the letters of recommendation in that culture were very important. Paul had, think about this now, Paul had letters of recommendation from the Sanhedrin, the Jew, ruling Jewish council, to go into, this is when he was the, the Pharisee, Paul, to go into synagogues in Damascus and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem where they might even be executed. But now, the Christians who were captured by God through Paul's message are his recommendation letters. Look at verse 2 and 3. So now he says to the Corinthians, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink and scrolls, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul is contrasting the law written by God on tablets of stone that Moses brought down from the mountain compared with what was written on the hearts of the Corinthians using the ministry of Paul as his pen and ink. And when Paul says they are written on his heart, when he says that, he's using a phrase in the Greek language that means they cannot be removed from that place in Paul's life. They're in his heart. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uh, defines heart this way, and this is very accurate. The heart in biblical thought is the center of inner life and the seat of all functions of the soul. It is the place to which God returns and His Spirit speaks. So it's okay to say you need to receive Jesus into your heart because that's what it's talking It's talking about your real self your real self. Well, I want to sort of end with something that uh, <clears throat> I've been thinking about for some time, and I've not said it, and I need to. I can say the same about all of you who call Calvary Chapel, Sarasota, your home. I'm so privileged to exercise my gift of teaching for so long to so many of you. I've received many letters and emails and texts from those who have visited our fellowship on vacation or while living here part-time, letters that commend me for having such a loving church. Well, I don't have any church. I'm just a person who God has saved and who he has used to teach what the Bible says and not just my own opinion of things. You have been my letter of recommendation over and over and over again, and I thank you. But we must never take for granted what God has done, and we must continue to use our gifts, love one another, be full of grace and forgiveness, and never forget to thank God for what He is doing and will continue to do long after I'm gone or until the trumpet sounds and the angel shouts. So in closing, we are all letters the world reads daily. May we in the Spirit's power be letters of hope and love and perseverance so that many will ask us about the hope within us and may we be ready 
to joyfully explain the wonderful salvation that Jesus procured for us on the cross. Last statement. It's from Richard Baxter of long, long decades, well, more than 100 years ago. Be careful not to unsay with our lives that which we say with our tongues. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I'm sure all, if not most, most, if not all of us here feel as I do. I feel so sad to see what's happening, not only in our country, but around the world. The world doesn't know it, but they need the gospel. We know it, and we are the gospel in living form. So help us, Father, to be filled with your spirit, to be growing in your word, to be using our gifts in the church, and to be living in such a way that many will ask about our joy and our ability to persevere in times of difficulty so that we can tell them the good news about Jesus, that he rose from the dead after he died on the cross for our sins. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, if you're here today or online and you've never called upon the Lord, just call to him and say, Lord, I want to be saved. I want to know I have eternity. I want to know that I'm going to live forever in heaven. I'm sorry for the way I've lived my life. I'm a sinner. I, I repent of my sin, and I ask you to save me. And if we say that in any form at all, then you'll be saved, and you can become part of the family of God. And this is a particularly good part of it, but there are many other parts of the family of God around us in this uh, city and around the state and around the United States and around the world. So, Father, cause a revival, please so that we can see many more come to know the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.